This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Joe Dyer. Joe is an independent political candidate running for the seat of Boothby in South Australia at the upcoming federal election. Joe talks to me about her essay-length book, Burning Down the House, Reconstructing Modern Politics. Joe speaks about how federal politics went awry and how we can reconstruct it. She also talks about the growing movement of independents putting their hand up to run for parliament. We're going to be talking about a topic that is very, very important to, I think, everyone who would be listening right now, whether they realise it or not, and that is the state of politics in Australia because, as we have discovered through this pandemic, political decision-making does truly affect all of us and it has real-life consequences. I'm going to be joined right now, in fact, by Jo Dyer. She is an independent candidate running for the seat of Boothby in South Australia at the federal level, and she's also a cultural curator, and uh, she's been known to be and is outgoing artistic director of the Adelaide Writers Festival and uh, has had a depth of experience and breadth in the cultural sector in general. And Joe has written a book. It's out through uh, Monash University Publishing. It's called Burning Down the House, Reconstructing Modern Politics. And we're going to be discussing how politics has gone wrong and what we can do to, as is said in the title, reconstruct modern politics. So I welcome Joe now. Hi there, Joe, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's absolutely a pleasure. I'm really excited to talk about this book and also about independence because I think they are really the unsung heroes of politics and have been for quite a while and perhaps they've been sneaking under the radar a little bit, but now they are front and centre in terms of the numbers of people who are running as independents uh, in local seats at this upcoming federal election. So it's very exciting to see that you're putting your hat in the ring, but also that you're part of this broader movement. Look, that's absolutely right. There does seem to be a moment in Australian politics like we haven't had before, where there's actually a critical mass of independents running in seats that actually are in with a chance. Um, For the first time, they seem to be attracting interest from the broader population and not being an outlier, a rarity that you've seen pop up in, say, Tasmania with Andrew Wilkie or here in in South Australia, Rebecca Sharkey was elected, although initially under the Central Alliance banner. Now it is sort of across the country that people are giving them a second look and thinking of them as a real alternative uh, because there really is, whilst we are not linked in any formal way, I think we can all see that if only a few more of us, um, if we assume that Andrew Wilkie, Rebecca Sharkey, Zali Segal, Helen Haynes get re-elected, which I think we can assume because the interesting thing about independence is that whilst it's incredibly hard to get elected in the first place when you're against the might of the major parties, the funding that they have, the brand that they have so that individual candidates don't have their work cut out for them in the same way as independence. But if they can climb that tall mountain and get elected for the first time, communities seem to really embrace them and stay with them. So independents can have a long time in Parliament if they can get in for the first time. So I'm feeling pretty optimistic that all of the current independents will be re-elected 
And it would only take another two or three and the balance of power is well and truly up for grabs. It is such a polarised electorate at the moment. We've had very close elections for the last few elections now in both 13 and, uh, well, 16 and 19 in particular. So with a close election, a few more independents, that balance of power can be held by people who are there for all the right reasons and who are really only there to advance the common good and support evidence-based rational policies. And it could just really transform the whole political landscape and the way that we actually practice our politics. It is an exciting time, I think. Oh, Joe, it sounds like utter chaos. I mean, what's going to happen if the two major parties get <laughs> thrown off their chairs? We get told by them in, you know, all these op-eds over the last couple of months that the sky is going to fall in if all these independents get in and, and the two major parties are forced to negotiate. Well, yes, imagine that, having to actually negotiate with people who are there to listen uh, attentively and who really only want what is good for the country if they have to actually persuade people um, that the policies that they're advancing are going to be good for individual electorates and are going to be good for the wider nation. I mean, wouldn't that be such a radical thing? And look, the thing is, is that there are coalition governments all over the world. We're in that Mm. coalition government right now. We have been for years. Um, So the idea that this is somehow going to be a recipe for chaos is simply not borne out by the international examples and indeed Australia's own examples, quite apart from the fact that at Federation, for the first few governments, we, we had coalitions. Despite all the publicity around the minority Gillard government, it was one of the most productive governments and parliaments that we have ever had. The chaos was actually all on the Labor side to do with the sort of internecine warfare that are going on between the Rudd, well, particularly being launched by the Rudd camp. It wasn't the case that actually having independence there as part of minority government caused any kind of chaos. It actually just caused much more care and attention to be paid to each individual piece of legislation. And we had some really great reforms that were enacted by the minority Gillard government. In a way, I have to say that we have not seen by the subsequent coalition government. Mm. Well, I mean, you you bring up that past example, which I had in my mind when we were just talking there. It reminds me of those independents, Rob Oakeshott, Tony Windsor, and at the time, Bob Catter. Tony Windsor, I certainly am still a massive fan of, and he um, still tweets to this day and provides his always insightful and forceful views, which um, are always really true and uh, poignant about politics. But it did remind me that we did actually get to a very good place with that bunch of really men in that example on policy and that they were taking each policy as it came to them and considering things, weighing things up in a very measured and even way. But we did see parts of the media try and um, whip up this kind of hysteria around the fact that the Gillard government are being beholden to just these three people and it's uh, so undemocratic for the whole of society to be um, dictated by just three people. So I wonder... Well, first of all, what are your thoughts on that? But also it's interesting that they were three men and now we're looking at a lot of women in particular running at the moment. Look, that's exactly true. I mean, look, the media is trying to whip up a whole lot of hysteria in all sorts of ways, particularly the Murdoch media, but actually not exclusively. Um, Some of the nine media too seem to have a real bee in their bonnet around Climate 200, for example, and those sorts of trying to really paint us all as if we are A, a political party, which we are certainly not, and B, that there is somehow something 
sinister about accepting money from people who are concerned about climate change and who want to take action on climate change. Look, I think the thing is, is with Tony Windsor, Rob Oakeshott, people like that, they're honourable people. You know, they were there for the right reasons. We're not being held hostage by them as individuals. We were going through a rational policy development process by people who were concerned about outcomes for the greater good. That is actually in stark distinction, I must say, to the kind of hostage uh, taking that the nationals were doing when we were trying to develop some kind of rational policy on climate change. We watched Scott Morrison have to stand in the corridor waiting for the crazy nationals to make up their mind as to whether or not they wanted to save the world. And when they did, they came up with not an actual policy, they came up with a sentence and a pamphlet. Now, that is actually being held hostage by a minority of people. Most of Australia has for decades wanted to take meaningful action on climate change. We see that in every single poll that develops. And let's not forget that back in the 2007 election, we actually had a bipartisan support for emissions reduction scheme that went out the window with Tony Abbott, and it went out the window for purely political reasons. You don't have to believe me. That's what his chief of staff said. They decided to weaponise climate change for political ends. And that's where we've been stuck ever since. The rest of the world has moved on. The rest of the world, with governments of either political persuasion, are actually grappling with the biggest, most existential crisis that has confronted humanity. Here in Australia, we've still got slogans, we've still got stupid political positions being thrown around, and we're sitting outside in a corridor whilst people like the Nationals, like Matt Canavan, like Barnaby Joyce, uh, determine our future. And that, to me, is the real crime here. Not that a range of, as you say, particularly women who are coming from all sorts of different backgrounds. I mean, they don't need politics in their life. They're not the apparatchiks that have been groomed since university, going through as staffers, waiting to be able to put up their hands, be tapped on the back by a factional power broker. They don't need any of that. They all have successful careers and they all have pretty good lives from what I can tell. But they have been moved to act. There has been a compulsion that they, and, and indeed, I don't know why I say they, I think it's a distancing kind of, you know, <laughs> kind of security blanket to think, my God, is it really me? Am I doing this crazy thing? But we have been moved to act, I think, because of the urgency of the situation in which we find ourselves and because of the paucity of leadership that we have seen on offer from both sides of the political fence. Absolutely. And you did just use the royal we just there. So I'll jump, I'll jump in there. But <laughs> it's great that you are um, putting your hand up. And I'm so glad to see so many women doing that, because as we have heard, politics has traditionally and still is not a very positive place for women. And it certainly can be exceptionally hostile at the best of times. So Looking at the women that you're standing up alongside, I mean, there's obviously a, a very prominent journalist, um, Zoe Daniel, who's running, but there are a whole range of other women who are putting up their hand, Dr. Monique Ryan in Kuyong. Like, these are, as you say, women who have careers in such a, a range of professions. I wonder if you could even share what you're inspired by from these other women as well. I just saw that you um, you did do a photo shoot together, so you must have um, had a chance to catch up. Well, actually, that photo shoot was done in a socially distanced way. Each of us only caught up with one other person. So my shoot was with Penny Ackery, who's a fantastic candidate standing against 
you know, scandal magnet that is Angus Taylor, who, you know, was parachuted in, I think, from Vaucluse uh, into his seat round Goulburn and now, you know, parades around in his cosplay of a rural chap, uh, sort of a, a man of the farm. And she's a really wonderful candidate who, again, it's comes from the community and will be beholden only to the community if elected. I think the thing about the range of women that are running is that there is a safety in numbers, I think. You can look around and you can feel um, reassured that you're not really out there alone and behind the scenes there is some, you know, reassurance being provided and tips being uh, by campaign managers and that kind of thing. But, you know, you do have to run your own race as well because it's just it's hard slog. You just have to try and be out there as much as possible and introduce yourself to voters because you don't have that security of the Labor brand or the Liberal brand, which for many voters is a default position to which they'll snap back in that polling booth. They'll think, who's that? Who's that? I don't know that person. Oh, Labor, I know them. Or, oh, I mm. can't imagine many people choosing Liberal this time round after the, the you know, really poor government that we've had for the last few years. But it is still, as I say, a very high amount to climb to be elected as an independent. But there is something about that weight of numbers, it does feel like there could be a tipping point. And because it is a movement, there is more publicity around it. We're building a greater profile of the idea of doing something different. Um, You know, I've been saying that if you want things to be different, you actually have to do something different. And what you can do is not underestimate the power of your vote and use it creatively. Um, We're lucky here in Australia to have the preferential voting system. So there is no wasted vote. Um, The idea of per se, a vote for an independent being um, a wasted vote, I think is just has been demonstrated to be untrue by the calibre of the independents that we've had elected to parliament. They get things done. And these are independents that are hold, that are on the crossbench at the moment are getting things done without holding the balance of power. They're just standing up and arguing their case. They've changed the agenda. They've changed the debate. And in some cases, like recently, as we saw with Rebecca Sharkey's amendments to the Religious Discrimination Act that were passed, they're actually changing the law. So they're doing things already. They're attracting attention to their electorates. Of course, in this day and age of the pork barrel, there's actually money being tipped into electorates that their government um, are hoping to wrest back from independence. So they're already doing great things for their community. But with this tipping point, with this potential critical mass, if the balance of power is secured by the independents, and as I say, it could only take the election of two or three more for that to happen, then I do believe that will be quite transformational because we all do have very key points that would need to be addressed and discussed and agreed before either party would attract our support to form government. And first and foremost, that is obviously taking really strong and ambitious action on climate change. We've got Mike Cannon-Brooks there as an example showing what can be done. We've got Saul Griffith there really detailing, well, in great detail, what can be done right here and now. The climate change isn't in the future It is now. But equally, the solutions that we need to implement to transition to a different kind of economy and a different kind of society are also here now. 
We're just ignoring them for ideological reasons because this government is captured by the fossil fuel industry and the Labor Party is so scared of the dark art of the wedge that they don't want to be bold and ambitious. They just want to slip back into government and they would be better than the current government that we have. I make no bones about that. I do think that we need to kind of reset um, because we've become so mired in toxicity. But neither of the parties are being as bold as we know we need to be to ensure sustainable living on this planet. So that would be the first kind of plank that would need to be discussed and agreed with the independents were they to hold the balance of power. And then there, of course, are other very key issues around integrity, respect for women, and for me also equity and the way that we look after our most vulnerable people and in our community. Well, I'm very glad you say equity because that's um, certainly something that we focus on here on this show. And it's um, it's something that you bring up in the book as well. And I think um, I'll bring that up in just a moment. But before we jump across to some of the different policy areas that you raise and where we've kind of been going wrong, I did want to, to just circle back to your seat for just one moment here or the, the seat you're running for. I was interested to read, given I, I'm not a Adelaidean or South Australian, so I'm not au fait with all of the seats over in South Australia, but I was interested to know that it was actually or is the most marginal seat in South Australia and the third most marginal seat in the country. So for someone who is running as an independent, surely that is still a good sign for you. Uh, Obviously, it means that Labor is in with a chance, the Liberals are, and yourself. And I saw that you had a campaign launch over the weekend. So what are you doing as a political candidate um, in terms of, you know, making yourself known to your local community? And also, how are you building the set of policies that you stand for that will represent your community? Because I know that each independent has, you know, a different way of doing things. And people like Kathy McGowan had, you know, kitchen cabinet type discussions around the table. So I was wondering what your approach has been. Well, look, my approach really is sort of anything and everything. It, it really is a numbers game. So our agenda is to just get out there and meet as many voters as is humanly possible. Um, The kitchen table conversations that Cathy McGowan used to such great effect in Indi, that has become a bit of a model for these voices of community organisations that had spread across the country. One of the volunteers who was working on the Warringah campaign, um, and I referenced this uh, in the book as well, she talked about when she was being trained up by Al Gore or the the Al Gore organisation when An Inconvenient Truth first came out. And for what they talked about as part of the Inconvenient Truth training for people to go out and start spreading the word and seeking to persuade people about the risks of global warming. They talked about lighthouse projects. So it's a project that happens and after it happens, it sort of projects a light across the country and people can imagine something that they couldn't imagine before. There is a light that they can follow. Uh, And I think Cathy McGowan became that for so many independents. So people have scrutinised quite closely how it was that she went about it. And those kitchen table um, conversations actually came from the Mary Crooks at the Victorian Women's Trust in the first instance. Um, It was about going into homes and really engaging in an intimate way with voters, with the community and talking to them about what they loved about their community, um, what they thought about their current representation and what their ideal political representative might look like. And through those sorts of conversations, there was a wealth of knowledge being generated by what went on to become the grassroots community political movement that elected Cathy McGowan. 
But there was also seeding the idea in the minds of individuals that there was potentially a different way, that there is a power within the community, within the community's voice, and most importantly, within the community's vote. So they sort of pioneered this new way of, of doing things, which many of these organisations have followed in their footsteps. And I was, I've was i been endorsed by the Voices of Boothby and they had themselves conducted a range of kitchen table conversations over the last two years to highlight issues that were concerning them. So we've taken that research and we've done a bit more research of our own into what are the current issues that are of major concern to the people of Boothby. And, you know, surprise, surprise, they're the same sorts of issues as, as I've just been talking about. There's a real concern about climate change. Boothby is a slightly older uh, electorate by demographics, so there's great concern for the sort of future that we're going to be leaving behind for our children and for our grandchildren. Boothby is actually also a very civically minded electorate. They have a far higher percentage of the population who does things like volunteer, for example. So whilst there are some quite well-to-do people within Boothby, though the demographic is quite wide, we have people living on the beach, up in the hills, um, across the plains, so very different kind of lifestyles. They all do share a concern for each other and the wider community. Um, and that's really always been the building blocks of my politics, I guess. It's that this sort of incredulity that in a country as rich as Australia, we are not at a federal government level at the moment, a more generous, considerate, caring community. We have the resources to look after each of our fellow citizens at each stage of their lives, whether that's providing adequate childcare um, and early education when they're just born, whether it's ensuring that schools are funded on an equitable basis across the country so that everybody has access to the same fine education delivered by our same fine teachers, whether it's making sure that everybody has the same opportunity to get to university, to a well-funded university, which is offering a broad range of subjects across the curriculum, health systems that we need to access including dental care, including mental health care. Uh, and then particularly we have seen really the real tragedy in our aged care system over the course of this pandemic, which I think is something that we will look back on in shame. Uh, and I guess that is something that I raise a bit in the book, is that there are policy areas, and I just used the last two years as a snapshot to, to give that sort of bird's eye view of of what we've lived through, through this very kind of crazy time. But even within those two years, there are many areas of policy that I think Australians should be very ashamed of and for which there is no excuse in a rich, developed, highly educated country like ours. There's no excuse for some of the immoral, if not amoral, positions that we adopt politically and the consequences that we're prepared to live with for political gain at uh, the government level. And, you know, to me, it's not good enough. And I think that's what so many other independents are also thinking. It's not good enough. And we don't see a way to affect real change through the duopoly that is major parties. No. And I mean, you had a lot of material to use to go from, um, even <laughs> just from the last two I years. I yes. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot that isn't in there. Well, I know there isn't. Um, it's not all in there. It couldn't possibly be because there's been so many scandals and so much grant schemes, quote unquote, that have gone to many liberal seats and marginal at that. So these are things that 
crop up in the news, people take note of them at the time, and then they kind of fall by the wayside and those with a long enough memory will remember and others may not and will move on and be, you know, maybe more preoccupied with issues that are directly relevant to their day-to-day lives. Yeah, you know, that is just a, an interesting point there that in mm. the book, because, look, it's a small book, it's um, part of the International Interest Series of Monash University Publishing, so it's it's almost more as an extended essay than a book itself. Well, that's what I was saying to myself when I was writing I get to reassure myself, because now it's written, I only ever recorded a book. Um, <laughs> but the interesting thing is that because they are, you know, fairly modest in length, is that all of those personal scandals that really reflect on the integrity of the individuals within the government, whether it's just the straight-out lies or whether it's the Angus Taylor and Watergate and what did ever happen to that $80 million from the selling off of water that didn't ever really seem to materialise, or Stuart Robert, you know, with the extraordinary internet bills and his parents not knowing that he'd nominated them as directors for a company or masquerading as a public official when he was going to China for private business, Susan Lay flying up to the Gold Coast um, to keep up her pilot hours, buying an apartment while she was there, you know, Bridget McKenzie and all of those grant scandals around sports rorts, the community car parks, all of those sorts of, you know, reflections on people's personal integrities, they couldn't even make it into the book because they weren't de- – I was trying to deal more with the kind of institutional policies that mm. had let us down. So, But it does make sense that a government which is comprised of so many people who are so lacking in personal integrity would flow through and become a government which is enacting policy for personal or partisan gain um, and political ends rather than and stepping back away from the sectional interests who fund them and looking at what is required um, for the greater good, for the common good of our nation and indeed keeping an eye out on how the most vulnerable in our community are going and trying to find ways in which they can be helped, not ways in which they can be punished or ways in which their income can be cut or they can be made to jump through more hoops in order to receive the pathetic amounts um, of social security payments that we are providing to them, which do not uh, ensure that they can live a life out of poverty. So... You know, there was, as you say, there was such a breadth of issues that we've lived through with this government um, that one did have to choose which to leave out. And as I say, all of those personal failings of so many of the government ministers, um, you know, it's almost like we had to take them as red. We've been living with them for so long. And I just focus more on, on the policy issues themselves. Well, I'm glad you did focus on policy. And one thing that still sticks out to me and that you definitely bring up in this book is the deserving unemployed and the fact Mm. that in early 2020, in March, when suddenly the coronavirus pandemic really hit home in terms of its effect on the nation and on cafes and shops and people losing their jobs because we had to essentially lock down, that really overnight thousands of people became unemployed and also overnight poverty was practically solved in this country and then we decided to only make that solution temporary and it is still staggering to me and I know to a lot of others that we found the solution we gave people back their dignity we really restored the whole purpose of what a social security safety net type payment was for which was to lift people back up 
and mean that they could provide for themselves and um, not be living below the poverty line. And then we just decided that that was, I guess, a temporary measure. What are your thoughts on that, given that it just seems like such a, an obvious thing to realise that there were, as you say in this book, things that we've learned that we decided to ignore? That seems to me one of the most extraordinary things of the pandemic, that overnight, as you say, we could raise the job seeker allowance by two. We could double it effectively. Um, and we did that because Josh Frydenberg seemed to be really uncomfortable with the fact that there were queues of people building up around the blocks near Centrelink who didn't fit the stereotypical idea of what an unemployed person looks like. Um, jobs did vanish overnight as cafes and other hospitality areas, theatres, some retail, all had to close down or move to online or takeaway only or that kind of thing. And so when there were these people who were suddenly thrust unexpectedly into unemployment, who did more closely resemble people like Josh and Josh's community, he thought, oh, well, this is terrible. They, they can't be forced to scrimp and save and be thrown into poverty in the way that we have kept so many people in poverty who've been unable to find jobs um, over the last course of you know however long. We can't have them living like that. So in order for them to live lives of dignity um, and to be able to continue with their day-to-day -day existence, we will double job seeker. And we doubled it overnight with the so-called coronavirus supplement. Um, and that had the collateral benefit of lifting people who'd been really stuck, mired in poverty for so long, living lives of such uncertainty and such insecurity and without any way of clawing their way out of poverty. I mean, we all know that if you're reliant on the measly amount that is job seeker now. It's incredibly difficult to, you know, maintain your telecommunications that you need to to have a phone, to be online so that potential employers um, can contact you. It's very difficult to maintain transport, um, whether that's public transport or trying to run a car if you're trying to get further afield. The way that single parents, for example, have to try and find childcare um, whilst they're looking for jobs or if they're engaging in some of the onerous and often quite ridiculous mutual obligations that the social security system requires of you. You know, all of these things which had just become part of the way of the difficult lives that individuals relying on the social security system were leading, none of that mattered for most of the time. And it was only in that moment when people looked more like Josh that we showed that things could change and they could change radically and they could change immediately. And it does beg the question, why are we not doing that for our fellow Australians as a matter of course anyway? What was shown, and this has been shown by Accenture, which is hardly a hotbed of revolutionaries or left-wing radicals, they did some research into the real-time experiment that took place over the course of the pandemic when those living on Social Security were suddenly lifted out of poverty. And this idea that people are going to waste money or there's going to be a disincentive for people to keep looking for work was just revealed by the data to be completely untrue. So the cruelty being the point namely that we need to keep social security payments 
very low because otherwise people will be inspired just to lie around and watch Netflix and smoke dope and, you know, not try and find work and not get out there and try and become self-reliant. It's just not borne out by the facts that we were able to glean through this real-time experiment, a very unusual real-time experiment. So quite apart from the sort of the rights and dignities of our fellow citizens, we could actually show that this was good for the economy, um, both because people who were poor or who are on low incomes, they spent their money. So they were stimulating the economy by putting extra money straight into the economy. Um, so it's good for the economy and it's good for individuals and it's the right thing to do. So with that kind of trifecta, you just think, why are we being so cruel? Why are we allowing so many of our fellow citizens to lead such difficult lives? And not only that, but we do it with this kind of draconian surveillance through them through the system. Even yesterday there was talking about Services Australia having new line items in their budgets, which is about private investigators. Mm. And it's back to the days of trying to catch out our fellow citizens doing things that they're not supposed to be doing. Um, and it, it seems to me it's just an extraordinary way to run a country. And I come back to the point that it's an entirely unnecessary way to run a country. It is a counterproductive way to run a country. So it must come down to ideology. There's no rational basis for it. And again, rational-based policy, which has the eye on the greater good in a responsible way, that is the way forward and that's what we as independents have been advocating. I hope that that is one issue that independents would bring up with a future government if they were in a negotiating position because that's just one of the key policy areas where we've even seen agreement across the business community to say that the amount of job seeker is not enough. They've joined forces with groups like ACOS to say that things need to change. And obviously, uh, everyone might disagree on by how much, but there is room for change because I think most of the population who is logical and rational and isn't driven by ideology would also agree that it makes sense to what? support yeah. one another. This is the really interesting thing, is that there are a lot of policy areas where there is broad consensus um, amongst the Australian population mm. um, every time when these issues are brought up, and yet they're being stymied by the political class. As you say, there is absolute broad agreement now that the job seeker rate needs to go up. Um, as you say, debates around the margin by exactly how much, but certainly by a significant amount. And that could be done immediately. Change of government, let's do it, done. Get rid of the Indu card, could do it immediately, let's yeah. do it, done. We put in train um, in the first 100 days, and this is something the Labor Party has signed up to, plans for a referendum on the voice to parliament as embodied in the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Let's do it immediately. Establish a National Integrity Commission can be done almost immediately. There are really key areas of policy on which there is broad consensus throughout the community, which we could move on within the first 100 days of a new parliament, which have been stymied by the ideological position of this particular government. Uh, and in some cases, but not all, so on Uluru Statement on Integrity, Labor are, are good, um, and certainly better than... No, 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 I won't try and pass my words there. They have good policy positions on those two areas. And have a change of government, we could start enacting these things immediately with an independent crossbench 
holding the government to account and making sure that they reflect the broader wishes of the Australian population. These things can be done quickly. We have just been held back, as we were by same-sex marriage, on the, on the issue of same-sex marriage for so long. And then finally, and by a completely unnecessary and ridiculous process in the case of same-sex marriage, but finally it did get enacted and, you know, no controversy. Everyone just moves on. And I think that's what would happen if some of these policies were enacted. You would see how ridiculous and recherche and old-fashioned and ideologically driven the policy positions are that being are being adopted at the moment by a spoiler of a government. Yeah, and you do point out in this book that really there is a huge amount of tribalism that's driving our current politics and also this whole political strategy of wedging as well. And we've seen that in the last sitting week, last week with, you know, the government desperately trying to wedge Labor on pretty much every legislative Mm. point and on China as another example. This is something which already existed in politics. There's no doubt that, you know, there's a certain level of ideology and tribalism, but it does seem that things have really increased to such a kind of fever pitch level that it's basically stopped the progression of any type of policy development from occurring. Yeah, look, I think this government has, as you say, taken things to a completely different level. And maybe part of it is the fact that it's got this bad uh, over the term of this government is because of the unexpected nature of the government's win, is that they just simply didn't have a policy agenda at all. They had nothing that they were really proposing to do to better Australia. If it hadn't been for the pandemic, I actually don't know what the parliament would have spent all of their time doing over the past three years because there certainly weren't ideas and agendas being advanced by this government. You know, the the last election campaign was, as so much of the last couple of years had been, was just this procession of ridiculous photo opportunities of Scott Morrison doing ever more crazy things in front of a camera to try and convince people that he's actually not a mean-spirited, ideologically driven, power-hungry politician, but he's actually a man of the people who likes his rugby and, you know, who cooks curry. But, you know, it... Over the last couple of weeks, you know, the the government really has been saying the quiet bits out loud. They actually Mm. have been saying that so much of what their antics in Parliament over the last two sitting weeks in particular were about setting tests for Labor. And what those tests were was some kind of weird and arbitrary political test as to whether or not they would stand up to the government on issues which the government had decided were going to be controversial or whether they would capitulate. And time and time again, the opposition does seem to capitulate to the government in order to make the debate go away. And Laura Tingle described Labor's three-word slogan as being we're with them. This idea that they, whilst they may have some policy positions that, that they're prepared to advance, a lot of it is about being reassuring that whilst we're not them, we are quite close to them or we're not sufficiently different to them that you need to be worried about Mm. voting for us. So what the government then has done is just find more and more extreme positions to adopt to try and ferment worry and ferment anxiety and, you know, the ridiculous and infantile characterisation of Labor as the kind of reds under the bed scares that we've seen over the last two weeks with Dutton and then Morrison 
seemingly Morrison wanting to play catch up with Dutton on insane right wing positions in case Dutton makes a move on Morrison's position. But, you know, they have shown that they have, there is no boundaries to what they will do, um, to what they will try and weaponise. Using national security as a political domestic tool really is quite beyond the pale. And to abandon bipartisanship on national security at this point in time, when everybody does agree that it's a volatile world in which we're living, the growth of China, Europe in its most dangerous flashpoint since World War II, all of these sorts of things are as nothing compared to the government's desire to win the next election. And they really don't seem to care who are raising voices of concern, in this case, the extraordinary and you know, entirely unusual intervention by the national security agencies themselves saying, you know what, guys, probably not a good idea to just steamroll over them too in their pursuit of Labor and the Manchurian candidate rhetoric is, I think, unprecedented in our political time. But sadly part of the course of this government and just continuing on a trajectory of anything will be used for partisan political advantage and nothing is considered through the prism of actually what would be good for the country and what would actually progress our country in any number of, of different ways. So it's, it's, a, it's a very strange and disappointing but quite dangerous time that we're in. Yeah. Well, just finally, you know, to close out that thought, this is something which people have noticed has caused a lot of undermining of faith in politicians and in politics and parliament and even the idea of democracy. It certainly made a lot of voters feel disillusioned and cynical about politics. And I know that the whole point of the independent per se is really to restore that trust and integrity to say that I'm not beholden to these interests and I'm not accepting, you know, donations from XYZ company or fossil fuel group. And that's one thing which certainly also seems to be a kind of easy thing to do in the sense of committing your own values to your political donations as an individual. It um, clearly doesn't happen as much at a party level. It donations come from all types of sources. And and as we have heard, we only find out about it 18 months later. And many of these trusts or, or business groups are kind of unnamed or not traced back to individual business people or, or wealthy individuals. So I wondered when you're thinking about being an independent, clearly there's a lot more focus on your integrity as an independent and, you know, where you get your donations from as one example of many measures of, of integrity. So I wonder, you know, how are you approaching that yourself and how do you see that? Because obviously that's, it's not only a political advantage compared to the other parties or the other candidates, but it's also a kind of point of difference and something that, you know, there's pressure on all of you to kind of do the right thing. Look, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think our political donation system is so in need of reform. I mean, it's nearly half the money that flows to the major parties is completely unidentified, as you say. Partly it's because threshold for donations is now high, nearly $15,000. You know, that's a substantial amount of money that you can donate before you have to disclose it at all. Um, but even beyond that, actually so much of the money that flows in is deliberately hidden. It goes in through these associated entities, so which are essentially fundraising bodies, which have been set up 
exclusively to raise money for the major parties. And yet because the money goes to the associated entity rather than directly to the major party, the major party only discloses that they've got money from the associated entity. Same thing as if you're attending major fundraising events is that if you're getting a service back, you don't necessarily need to disclose the amount that you've you've paid to go and sit and eat, you know, bad chicken next to the minister. Um, so there are there are strategies which have been carefully developed to try and hide the money flowing into the major parties. But even that which is disclosed is disclosed 18 months later, way after elections have been fought, policies have been developed and policies have been implemented. And when we do see who's giving the monies, surprise, surprise, it is those who can benefit directly from decisions made by government. And the biggest donors are fossil fuel industries. It is those who stand to benefit from contracts and from access that are in the purview of the government to dispense. So whilst there might not be you know, a direct nudge, nudge, wink, wink, I'll donate to you if you give me that contract down the track. There is this environment of this sort of elite club which is created where everybody is mixing in it together. And in the case of the fossil fuel industry, for example, we see people moving directly from companies, uh, fossil fuel companies into parliament or from peak bodies into the offices of government, into senior advisory roles within government. Politicians leave parliament and they're put on the board of these organisations. I mean, there is this sort of club, Marion Wilkinson called it the Carbon Club, um, of groups of individuals and organisations who have an ideological and a commercial interest in maintaining the status quo, and they go about doing it very strategically and with a lot of thought and a lot of planning and a lot of money. And so from what we would say as independents is that we need to know what's going on. We need to have transparent and accountable government. So we need to know how it's being funded. Um, and in order to do that, we need to see real-time disclosure of any donations which are above $1,000. And I'm quite happy to, to live by that throughout the campaign. In fact, I've only had two donations <laughs> that are above $1,000, and both of those donors are named on my GoFundMe page. But this sort of hidden world of money means that we don't have transparency. So we don't actually know who's funding our major parties. And then we, so therefore we don't know um, when policies are being developed or implemented, who has had influence over them and what that means. And look, when we get a gas pipeline being proposed as an appropriate solution to a global pandemic by someone who just happens to have lots of commercial interests in fossil fuels and gas, as happened with Nev Power, you do have to think, well, look, how is a gas pipeline relevant to a global pandemic? And if we're mm. focusing our energies on things like that, perhaps we're not focusing our energies on whether or not, you know, we should diversify the sources of our vaccines, for example. So there are real costs to this. Um, and again, there are easy fixes to this. Um, and that could and indeed will be done if there is an independent crossbench in the next parliament. Yes. Well, we will find out fairly soon, actually. And it is really exciting. <laughs> Look, it is exciting. It yeah. is daunting. At various points, it's quite terrifying. But I guess the one good thing about it all, as you say, is that it is coming up soon. And this campaign and all of the energy and all of the terror that <laughs> it can inspire and galvanise, you know, it's a finite run. 
So there will be an election by May 21. And all of this will be over one way or another. And look, I hope I'm on my way to, to Canberra. I'm not packing my bags just yet, I'd have to say. But I do feel confident, as I said at the start of our conversation, that there could be sufficient numbers of these independents who are all about reviving democracy at a really grassroots level, having a dialogue with our community that we can take to Canberra and transform the kind of representation that each community and each electorate has and through that really help transform the country. I'm confident we can do it. Well, I am now too, and I'm feeling very optimistic, <laughs> which is a rare thing for me on politics. So thank well, you, Joe. Well, that's a good way to start the day. <laughs> yeah, you really have. You've started the, the show very well, and I, I do appreciate that. It's uh, really injected some positivity into this show this morning. So thank I'm you. I'm pleased to be of service. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I much appreciate it. And I really do wish you all the best with your campaign. Wonderful. Thank you yeah. so much for that. I really appreciate it. No, good luck. I can't wait to see what happens on election night. Thank you. See you, Joe. See ya. Bye. I've just been speaking with Joe Dyer. She is an independent candidate running for the seat of Boothby in South Australia at the federal level, and she's also a cultural curator and outgoing artistic director of the Adelaide Writers' Festival, which is coming up in March if you are interested. And we've just been discussing her In the National Interest essay or short book, which is out through Monash University Publishing, and it's called Burning Down the House, Reconstructing Modern Politics. And as Joe said, there are so many independents running in various seats, so you may find yourself having some luck and finding that there might be an independent running in your electorate that resonates with you. And uh, as Joe said, the preferential voting system means that if you voted one for an independent and they didn't get up on the first round, well, that doesn't matter because your second preference is where your actual vote will be directed to. Uh, and if they don't get up, it then goes down. And as you can tell, it's a an excellent uh, system of voting that we have here in Australia. So hopefully, Hopefully that does make you feel a little bit more optimistic like I do and uh, that if you're not happy with the major parties or the minor parties that you could look to an independent as one of the many choices that you have at this upcoming election, which, as Joe said, has to be called very soon and will be held by May 21. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.